Hello, sommelier Jill Mott. I put watermelon in my smoothie this morning. I think it's kind of like crack. Wow. Good morning, Emily Reese. How's it going? Well, I don't know why I said good morning. Maybe it's because it's I just the first it time I saw a human, so I'm like, good morning. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Did you see how I just let that one slide? I'm just like, we'll just let it go. Thanks they'll, for that. They'll think we're cracking open the wine in the morning. That's fine. We've done it before. I know. It is yeah. midday, however. And <laughs> how are you, Ms. Emily Reese, jazz and classical music extraordinaire and radio host? How are you? I'm doing great. It's a little bit of a heat wave here in Minneapolis, which makes it kind of fun. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about some wine and some uh, really great music. We're going to drink not necessarily the heaviest wine that we've had here on Scores and Pours, because we've had some mezcal and we've had some strong things. Yeah. But we're going to drink the inkiest and maybe the most tannic, according to history. Interesting. Nothing like that on a 90 degree day in I know. Minneapolis. What's it? What is it? Can, can you tell us now? Uh, I can, of course. We're going to be drinking a wine from southwest France, technically from the Haute <laughs> or Haute Pays is what yeah. it looks like. Uh, the upper country, just to confuse people, but it's from southwest France. I'll leave it at that. All right. Everybody will know in two seconds, anybody that knows anything about wine is going to know what we're drinking. It's not Bordeaux, but it, fuck it. <laughs> we're going to have cowers. We're having Malbec today, people. <laughs> Because our topic today is kind of an interesting one. It's by the wayside is the term we came up with. And so for me, I chose a classical composer and a jazz musician who are lesser known and like they're not names that you would come across as you are dipping your toe into classical music or jazz. It would be rare for you to stumble across these fellows uh, early in your adventure. So I'm going to talk about a French composer named Emmanuel Chabrier and a jazz musician from Oklahoma City that people virtually uh, know very little about named Dupree Bolton. So that's uh, that's what I've got on my list. I want to name a lot of things Dupree Bolton, but I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it to you to tell us more about him. I'm excited to hear more. So the reason why I chose Cower today, or Cowers, uh, depending on where you're from, is... Historically, in wine regions, wine like Bordeaux or Burgundy or Rioja or these names that most people, even if you don't know what grapes are in Bordeaux, you know Bordeaux is a wine. You might even not know what color it is, right? But you know that Bordeaux is a wine, usually because they've like stomped the foot of a different region that's close by so that they were able to reap the benefits and the privileges of their ability to kind of squash the the little guys or the, the lesser known people. Those are some loud ass birds. That cardinal <laughs> is going to definitely be on this recording. <laughs> okay, well, whatever. <laughs> and so I'm going to, the reason why I chose Caor, there were many regions, um, little appellations in Southwest France and, you know, even in Austria, in Spain that I could have... <laughs> that I could have chosen, but I'm really excited to feature Southwest France or some of my favorite wines in the world. So Cool. Well, let's start drinking. Can we start by tasting it? Jesus. Okay. <laughs> I will tell you and the listeners exactly what we're drinking in mere moments after we get a little bit more into the history of Cower and the history of Southwest France. But I do want to start speaking of listeners by thanking our patrons. Oh, yes. We could not do this without you. Tasting wine, editing, 
Sammy producing all the things. So thank you very much. For those of you who want to become patrons and to support us, we would love that. We would adore that. We are able to sustain our production of this because of our existing patrons. So any help that you can provide would be awesome. And we make it really easy for you to select a tier that works best for you. In every case, you get patron-only content, recipes, wine pairings, music pairings. But in some cases, you get some free merch action, which is great. My personal favorite is the corkscrew. We have the most badass corkscrew. So yeah, check it out, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Also, we're on Instagram. You can find us there and hit us up with a DM if you want to give us a show idea or you have questions or comments. Uh, it's real easy to f- track us down there at Scores and Pours on the Instagram. And lastly, there is on that patreon.com slash scores and pours, speaking of the corkscrew, if you can't support us monthly, you can buy a corkscrew. Yeah. You can go on there, buy a tea, buy yeah. a hoodie. Yeah. So just throwing that out there. Buying stickers. We have stickers. You can cover your car in stickers. I saw a car covered in cork the other day, and I was like, I just want to drink a glass of wine on your hood, man. It was so awesome. <laughs> you can cover your car in, uh, it costs a lot of money probably, as stickers are a few bucks each or whatever, <laughs> but I digress. Here's some wine, Emily Reese. Excellent. To scores and pours. Two scores and pours. Check out that color. It's very beautiful, dark red. It is a real dark red, kind of almost like a dark cherry, actually. Yeah. What color dark, when they have a little bit of that black color to them. Um, yeah, kind that, of purpley that, almost. Well. You don't think so? I'm not going to go into purple. No, I think it's Interesting. very. I think, I think it's, it's very, like a purpley red. Okay, Malbec is known for its purple hue, but that's in really, really warm places. So, um, and also with color enhancers like mega okay. purple. yeah. But let's give us a taste and smell. Mm. Inky. Like pen ink? No, almost like I can, thanks for clarifying. No, almost like I can smell the saturation of the fruit. Not like the fruit is overripe, but it's just, it smells like nice, warm fruit. Like the maceration has been long and very intentfully so. And I'll explain why. A lot of dark plum, kind of dark mineral. It smells like a warm wine. Let's taste it. Oh, wow. There's more acid than I expected. It's really tart. It's like 93 degrees outside. Yeah. We're just drinking Kaur because we can. Let's plan that better in the scheduling, folks. Um, for those of you <laughs> working on the Scourge and Pours scheduling, which is basically you and I. And yeah. Ooh, I like how dry, you know. It, I mean, yeah. most of the wines we have here on the program are dry, but it seems like there's just not a lot of extra. It smells like there's going to be more extract. There's going to be more generous fruit on the palate, and there's not. That's true. There's not this lasting candy after afterglow mm-hmm. that some reds especially can have. It's just very uh, kind of compact at the end. And you notice how even though there's more acid than you would have expected, there isn't a ton of, I mean, this is like kind yeah. of the medium spectrum, you know, obviously mm-hmm. the first sip of the day always hits us like, whoa, which is why usually when you're judging wine or beer or something, they give you like a, any any good judging entity gives you a welcome wine or a welcome beer to like get your palate kind of calibrated, if you will. And that's very characteristic of Malbec, uh, which in this region is called Osherwa, which is actually a white grape. So people wonder why it got there, how it got that name. Let's not even go there because <laughs> half of the w- grapes in the world, if they're not actually, people don't do DNA testing. Never mind. I don't want to go there. Fuck it. Okay, Mary. So why don't I was going to go into wine, but now that we have our lips wet uh, and our tongues wet with some nice wine, why don't we Tell me about some music. Tell me about Chabrier. Yeah. I love him, I, but you know that. 
I, I love Chabrier. I've always loved Chabrier because he's known as being a very colorful composer, as many French and Russian composers as well, but French is the name of the game today. And uh, he, he just wrote with really brilliant colors in use of, use of percussion and his use of instrumentation. And to boot, he was mostly self-taught, if not entirely self-taught as a composer, which is interesting, even though he did take piano lessons starting from a very young age, six, from a Spaniard, actually. Hmm. And uh, let's go ahead and just listen right away then to one of his most famous pieces, which is called Spain, España. triangle. Self-taught, seriously? I mean, for the most part? Jesus. Yeah, he never had any formal composition training at any kind of music school. He he didn't go to conservatory. He became he was a lawyer. His parents, mostly his father, essentially forced him into that. He wanted to be a musician, but his dad was like, "Nope." And he was a lawyer for almost 20 years before he finally at the age of 40 decided, "I want to be a composer." All that angst coming out against his father's coming out in those symbols. Just <laughs> How many people are playing in this ensemble? I know. It's a big romantic-sized orchestra because this is the 1880s, so, you know, there's a handful of trumpets and a full horn section and a very full percussion section, full winds, Mm -hmm. all the things. It's great. It's absolutely fantastically fun and memorable music. Now, when we when you decided on him, because I know there were pro- dozens of other people you could have chosen, did you decide on Chabrier because, I don't want to say he was pushed by the wayside, like physically or mentally or emotionally by, say, Ravel or someone like that, but was it just, like, why was he, why is he not as well known? Well, I think part of it is, even though he had kind of a significant out- output given that he composed professionally for less than a couple decades because he didn't he he was born in 1841 and he he died in 1894 and so the fact that he was a civil servant for so many years before he was finally composing full time mm-hmm. you know i mean there was you know just a handful of years there where he was outputting music and even then there was like no, not much chamber, there's like no chamber music, it's like orchestral music and piano music and operas and a handful of other things, but there's really not the, the breadth 
of of some other composers in that way. Um, you know, it's not like he wrote 12 string quartets and a bunch of concertos or anything like that. There's a lot of variety in southwest France, uh, of which we may get to in a little bit, but I want to give people some perspective of why we're... You already know we're talking about it because southwest France was pushed aside by the Bordelais, but how was that done? Okay, so Eleanor of Aquitaine gets in bed with Henry II. Okay, so Gascony slash that part of France at the time marries with the crown, and now we have... Just like when the United States gets in bed with, I don't know, Iraq or whomever, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, oh, let's pat your back. Let's pat your back. So what happens? The Bordelais get some privileges from the crown, and those are, let's levy some taxes on anything that's not from Bordeaux, so that a lot of different goods coming out of Bordeaux, of which wine was included. Wine at that time, a lot of Bordeaux was a marsh, a lot of vineyard territory that's really expensive nowadays, and I'll tell you how that came to be in a second, but wines from southwest France were actually kind of sought after, and the fact that they were they were hefty, they, you know, it's it's a little further inland in southwestern France, so it, you get a lot of color, you get a little, at the time, get more body, and the wines from Bordeaux were kind of thin, and so levying those taxes on the places from southwest France made it so that not only wine, but a ton of other goods from Bordeaux were the ones that ended up going up north, right? And plus, Bordeaux, if I haven't mentioned it before, which I haven't, is a is a port city or port town village at the time. And so I would urge you all to get a map out just so you can... Um, I've got a map here for Emily and I to look at where France is located. Of course, you know, in comparison to England, but also Bordeaux is on this huge-ass estuary called the Gironde, which separates into two tributaries, the Dordogne and the Garonne. And those two tributaries ended up becoming what we would now call Bordeaux, and what became through the ages, actually through the centuries, really, from the mid-1100s until very recently, actually, that territory for all the goods that came, were produced there were, I think silk was a really big thing too there. A lot of cloth went up to England, went over to what we would consider now the Netherlands, and Bordeaux was favored because they levied those taxes. So then the, wow. all the people in southwest France, sad. Yeah. Didn't get, didn't get any love. Interesting. So what ends up, you know, when you are in some lié school classes, certifications, you learn like, oh, because they weren't on the rivers. Well, that's true. And you learn about, oh, the taxes. But then it, it goes even further into wine spoilage and stuff like that. that what, what do you mean? Well, I will leave you in suspense. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about more music. Yeah, let's talk about, let's hear some more Chabrier. Please. Let's hear... A set of piano pieces he wrote in 1880 called just 10 picturesque pieces. Although imagine that in France and then you have the actual title. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 10, picturesque, 10 picturesque pieces. Wait, 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 hold on. Is it Duzemi Okay. Dix. Dix. 10, I guess. Dix pièces picturesque. Yeah. Something like that. Something okay. like that. Okay. Yeah. 
you probably just said the cat played chess on Friday. I did, (laughs) while drinking wine is what I said. Okay. (laughs) And from this set of piano pieces, Chabrier, about eight years later, took some of them and orchestrated those. And that's also really famous orchestral music of his, even though it had its beginnings on the piano. So let's uh, listen to one of those, and then we can listen to the orchestrated version as well. But this is Idol. So is that common for, like, can you go on to, say, Spotify or wherever you listen to your music and find both the piano versions and the orchestral versions? Yes, you can. Cool. Well, now, the piano version, just remember, is 10 long, and he took four of those for his orchestral piece and renamed it. He called it Sweet Pastoral. So, you know, six of those pieces never got orchestrated, and they're in a, I think, perhaps in a different order than they appear in the original piano piece as well. But um, but yeah, so let's just listen to the one called Idol. pretty it's not like a like a nocturne pretty but it's like got a lot of this energy it's very like forward and not forward thinking but there's just a lot of like inertia that way does that make any sense at all yeah i love that you say the word inertia because i think a lot of his music had this really beautiful inertia to it and also just just the melody it's so melodic So let's hear some of the orchestral version. It's a little slower, but I think I think the transition is absolutely beautiful. I, I love both versions. I find them both so different from each other, even though it's the same music. So here's the orchestral version. See, the other one I couldn't imagine as, but this I could imagine as, like, maybe a ballet, maybe Mm. the opening of an opera. Like, it's got, you can tell, I just feel like this is more of a, I don't know, a nebula. There's a story that's floating around, very Frenchy. And it makes me, like, lean in and Mm -hmm. want to hear the story, you know? Yeah, it doesn't have the, it doesn't, that's so interesting because it doesn't have... It, energy it does, of course, but not the same inertia. Yeah. So we'll listen to one one other from the 10 pieces that did also become an orchestral version. Um, this is the Scherzo Valse, and I love the piano version. It's very technical. And in fact, Chabrier was known for being an absolutely brilliant pianist, like gifted beyond words, which is funny because he was kind of portly and kind of had 
stubby, wide fingers and kind of clumsy hands and just an oversized kind of fella, but uh, just played with, uh, apparently just with grace and style that couldn't be matched. And I find that so fascinating. Well, Oscar Peterson-like in the jazz world, perhaps? Exactly, yeah, exactly. So uh, here's the scherzo valse, which of the 10 is the final movement of the 10 piano pieces. Here we go. Now this verve, but it's kind of all jammed together. You know, there's just not a lot of time to like, if this were with wind instruments, I'd be like, take a breath. You yeah. know, that's just because <laughs> like, obviously he can breathe and play. Yeah. A little um, bit of moto perpetuo. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. yes. What you just said, what she said. <laughs> yeah. I just love the life in it. And it reminds me, honestly, of a French composer that preceded him by a couple hundred years, Jean-Philippe Rameau, mm-hmm. and the keyboard kind of fireworks oh, of yeah. Rameau's French keyboard music. Emily so, just Emily just misses talking about the harpsichord. I do. Which is I Yeah, do. I could see this on a harpsichord like yeah, yeah, I could we'd go back to Baroqueville, Emily'd be real happy. She 90 degrees wouldn't exist in Emily's world and she'd just be floating around sweating to the freaking harpsichord. Hilarious. So let's listen to the orchestral version okay. then, so you can hear how the just the character changes. Do that. Yes. This sounds really nice with the smell of the cower. Yes. Yes, it does. So yeah, so there's a little Chabrier. Did you know that Bordeaux was a marsh for the no, longest time? I had no idea. Did they like dam a river or something to make that stop? Well, the Dutch recognized the potential to drain it, these Dutch engineers, in like the 17th century or so. And so they drained it for many different reasons, but we'll talk about the wine reason today, is you know, not only was that a propitious, you know, that there's incredible terroir that nobody really knew about that became exposed. So plant that. But why plant that? Because all the while that all these taxes were being imposed, Southwestern wines were freaking cool. And the crown knew it. People knew it. They were still buying them. They were just buying less of them because they were more expensive. And this has happened as late as decades after the Hundred Years' War. Okay. I guess I digress. The Hundred Years' War was from... 1337 to 1453. And at that time, obviously nobody was worried about wine during the Hundred Years' War, really. After it was over, wine continues to be shipped between England and France. And the Bordelais were so jealous 
of even though these taxes were imposed on a couple different occasions, they were like, hmm, why don't we put another tax that's like if you sell retail within the commune, you're effed, another tax. Mm. And they made it such that they said, okay, Cower, for example, you can have your wine up here, we'll ship it, but we're going to ship all of our wine first. So what happens? Anytime from harvest and through fermentation and then before Christmas, these English fleets would come down and lay grace upon spending money in Bordeaux. And granted, that would benefit the crown, but the Bordeaux wines would be, they called it Vin Nouveau, much like Beaujolais Nouveau, new wine, right? Fresh wine. Mm -hmm. And that would all be shipped up north. Everybody's excited. They had their fresh new wine. What happens? Six to eight months later, they'd be like, now after all the Bordeaux wine is up and being enjoyed and everybody got their money, they'd be like, okay, Southwest France, now you can come sell your wine. And what happened? Wine spoiled so fast during that time that mm. in six to eight months, when they would allow people to from the Southwest to come up and sell their wine, at that point, they were calling it Van Ancien, like ancient or old wine. <sighs> Why? Because the wine had sat and cooked in, from Southwest France, cooked in the port of Bordeaux, not allowed to be shipped, and wine would decrease in value by half Wow. In six to eight months. So imagine, you know, your favorite wine is $20 a bottle and you, you buy it and it's fresh and it's delicious. And in six months, you go buy that same wine and it's almost vinegar. Maybe it's virtually drinkable, but maybe not. Hmm. And now it's 10 bucks. Nobody, even if it's 10 bucks, a lot of people don't want it. So it just like, they were kind of dicks, you know, yeah. they like, not only was the tax situation not cool. I mean, everybody does it. So a little bit is what it is, but yeah. then you go and you're like, well, now we'll just sell all of ours first. I don't know. That's a little, little tidbit that not a lot of people know that mm -hmm. about the pricing and mm -hmm. how quick wines were to spoil at that time. That's Because it wasn't a protection, you know, people knew about sulfur in the 1500s, but not a lot of people were using it to the extent that they are today, where it's like, which by the way, I kind of want this wine to have just a little less sulfur. Oh. I want it to be just a little bit more vivid fruit, but I have no complaints other than that because it's absolutely stunning. This is an independent vigneron. I want to tell you about it, but I feel like I've been talking a long time. Well, you also, you started off by talking about the marsh and then you... Well, just that the Dutch, like they drink, and a lot of people don't, when we think of Bordeaux, we think that it's just been there since the time yeah. of the Romans, yeah. you know, when a lot of places in France were making, shipping, and selling beer in the north and wine in the south, and that's not the case. Bordeaux is very recent. They started meaning first-growth Bordeaux, second-growth the Aubryons of the world, the Motun Rothschilds of the world. All of those are not uh, centuries old, yes, but by a couple, you know. Yeah, they yeah. were all, they came into being in the late 1700s, early or early 1800s, mid-1800s kind of thing. So they just are late to come onto the scene for the popularity that they've had. Why? Because they were in charge of the port and sorry, Southwest France, wow. squashy poo. That's amazing. But not if you're in Jill's world because I drink 10 times the amount of wine from Southwest France than I do Bordeaux. <laughs> Why? Because I think it's more interesting. Yeah. There's more variety and it's usually a 10th of the cost just depending on what you're buying. Yeah. I like this wine quite a bit. Do you want to know what it is? Yeah. So we are drinking a 2017 Clos Sigier. Looks like Sigier. 
And these vines are from 60-year-old vines. Now, if you follow the Dordogne tributary a little bit further southeast, 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 you get to Cower. So Cower has had a little bit more access to those riverways. They're right on the River Lot, which is also, uh, or probably Lo, if you're, I don't know, <laughs> if you're in France. So close to the Dordogne and the Gironde has had more access to the estuary, right? Whereas places like Jurançon, very close to the Basque country, very in the depths of Southwest France has had, is even less known, right? And then you have the popularity of frickin' Malbec, which I mentioned is called Ajerwar here. This is 90% Malbec and 5% Tanat, which in order to be called Kaur, you need to have, I think it's 75% Malbec, and then you can add 25% of Tanat and or Merlot. Five to six week maceration, so a ton of maceration time. Wow, yeah. yeah that's like... Not only is that a lot of time and tank for things to go wrong, but they're just extracting a lot of flavor and a lot of antioxidants from these grapes. At the same time, for those of you who have made wine that are listening to this podcast, when you macerate grape skins on grape juice, you get color, you get flavor, you get all these polyphenols, all these beautiful things, but the tannins come and go. So if you were to macerate on the skins for 10 years you're not necessarily going to have a super tannic wine. It's going to depend, usually within a few days, sometimes that wine is like undrinkable, it's so tannic. And then, you know, so five to six weeks, I think it gave just enough tannin and then it started to maybe just wane a little bit Yeah. because then it's at a really finesseful part, you know, like, don't you think right now? Yeah. Just how it tastes? The tannins aren't too aggressive? No, nothing about this is aggressive. I think it's really just flavorful and yummy. Mm-hmm. It's all native yeast here, and he ages in barrel for just a short amount of time before bottling, probably just to give it a little bit more refinement, let it breathe in, you know, in the barrel a little bit. And you can kind of taste just a little bit of that oak on the finish. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. guess is they're probably old oak barrels because it doesn't taste too much like vanillin. Yeah. And then also to allow like sediment, you know, to, to settle up, settle down to the bottom of the barrel so that sure. it's not being bottled with a lot of gunk, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think it's delicious. It's fun. I like it a lot. The way you set it up, like we're going to be drinking this on a 90 degree day. I, I just did not expect it to be this. I mean, it is really kind of refreshing, even though it's bold, you know? Maybe it's just that you want to drink wine at 2.30. Yeah, probably. Well, what, should we jazz in now because of that comment? Yeah. <laughs> Let's jazz because of that comment. Yeah, we're going to jazz. Um, a trumpeter named Dupree Bolton that you've almost certainly not heard of because he only recorded just a couple albums, three maybe, and is really kind of a mystery. He was born in 1929 in Oklahoma City. He died in 1993 and kind of just exploded onto the scene in 1959. Now, he ran away from home when he was about 15 to join a big band Mm. and almost right away got hooked on heroin. I was going to ask, wasn't he in prison or something like that? Didn't that happen? On and off, 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 yeah. Yeah, well. And and just really didn't, I don't think, want people to know who he was. He was just really private. He didn't, I mean, when he recorded an album called The Fox in 1939 with Harold Land, Harold Land is a saxophonist, and it was Harold's album, so Harold Land, the fox, is how you find it. Um, Harold also recorded with another great 
trumpeter uh, named Clifford Brown that we've talked about before. And Dupree Bolton played a lot like Clifford. Just lightning fast speed. Unbelievable. And Harold said that when he recorded that album in 1959 with Dupree, he didn't even know where Dupree was from. Like there's all this stuff Harold never even knew about him. And there is a journalist, critic, reviewer, historian named Ted Joya, a very famous jazz historian. And Joya tracked down Dupree Bolton in San Francisco in, I can't remember if it was the 80s, late 80s maybe. And you can find half of Joya's article online. You can't find the other half, which is really why hilarious. Not? Why do you, why part do you... two is just like part two coming soon, and there's no you can't find part two. Oh, which is frustrating because part okay. two contains all the really juicy like biographical details about Dupree, maybe Dupree's but family, someone in his family perhaps. got involved or something. Yeah, I mean it's just who knows what what's going on with that. But but anyway, let's listen to uh, Dupree play with Harold Land. Uh, the very first track on The Fox is called The Fox, and it was written by the pianist on the album, Elmo Hope. And, I mean, you'll just hear how blazing fast even just the melody of the tune goes, let alone the solo. So here we go. This is Dupree Bolton on trumpet playing a tune called The Fox with a tenor saxophonist named Harold Land. So we'll just listen through this tenor solo. Yeah. Because everything goes so fast that the trumpet solo, we don't have to wait long. But He's setting him up. He's setting him up. And the thing that I think blows my mind is as you listen, when Dupree starts to play, it's like, it almost goes by so fast, you can't hear what's going on, but he's following all the changes. It's, it's remarkable how fast he plays mm-hmm. and how accurate he is. And I wonder too, because you know when you have a reed instrument, it almost sounds a little bit like sandpaper, like there's a little, there's a little, almost like when you're going against the wind, you know, a little For the traction. Saxonist? Yeah, yeah. And so when you get to the trumpet, it's like you, there's, there isn't that yeah. but with a with a reed, yeah. uh, with a non-reed instrument, right, with a brass instrument. So I don't know. That's one of the things I noticed when I was listening to this a while ago. This lick. Whose mind was going too fast for words there? I mean, sure, there are many trumpeters who have really fast fingers. I mentioned Clifford Brown. Dizzy Gillespie, for instance, really super fast, blazing fast trumpeter. John Faddis. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. You know, even These ch- changes are insane. I'm glad you pointed that out for listeners because the, the keys are obviously changing as the song is progressing. Yeah, the chords change. Yeah. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. And so yeah, it's ridiculous. It's really incredible. 
So, yeah, we'll hear one more Dupree track. Let's listen to more Dupree right now. All right, let's listen to more. This is uh, from a few years later, an album that he recorded with a different tenor player named Curtis Amy. And there's also just the tiniest bit of YouTube videos of these two playing music from this album, Katanga. So let's hear the title track from that album, Katanga. And just again, it'll just give you an idea of just the the technical skill that Dupree Bolton had. This is was this dude thinking when he took a walk in the morning like what was going on upstairs there are accounts that he would he would practice for hours and hours and hours like 10 12 14 hours a day Really remarkable. He, his dad, didn't really want him to play trumpet. He, he wanted his dad was a string player, and so he first started on violin, and then he hmm. just was like, Dad, I really want a trumpet. I want a trumpet. I want a trumpet. And somehow he got a hold of some kind of alto horn. I, not a trumpet, but a brass instrument, and that helped his dad. He kind of convinced his dad, and his dad bought him a trumpet from Sears, and he got his trumpet and just like. Uh, I mean, he just, just took off. Away. Just took off. Yeah. Why has this fella been waysided? I think there are a couple of reasons. I think, you know, he came onto the scene in terms of, you know, like recording with Harold Land in 1959 and then with Curtis Amy in the early 60s. You know, jazz only had a few more years under its belt for it being so supremely popular, for one thing, before it started to get taken over by all the other things, rock and roll, disco, all the other things that happened after jazz. But plenty of jazz artists made it through that period just fine. So to say that Dupree Bolton was wayside because of that is a little short-sighted. I think more so it was honestly, I mean, God, it's hard to say it without sounding just say it that's, judgy, but like say it, that's what we do here. You yeah. know? <laughs> Go ahead. You know, life choices, I think. I think from the time he was, you know, around 15 years old to get hooked on heroin and drugs, and then he kind of got in this cycle of 
you know, possession and forgery charges and spent a lot of time in and out of prison on and off throughout his life. And I think, you know, could he have made comebacks? There are many jazz artists who did it. One of my favorite stories is an alto saxophonist named Frank Morgan who came back from years and years and years and years in prison and just kind of remade himself at the latter part of his life. But, you know, for whatever reason, Dupree Bolton just didn't do that and ended up performing on the street in San Francisco. And, you know, we when we talk about more popular options and stuff like that, you know, people just knowing Bordeaux over Cower. I mean, how many people, when you Google jazz trumpet, you want to yeah. learn more about jazz trumpeters, you get, you know, the, the five top ones. Yeah. So obviously yep. Dupree Bolton is probably number 462. Yeah. Yeah. Get out your maps, people, because just before I, we wrap up today, I want to show you and Emily here, because I got my map handy, how close southwest France is to Bordeaux and this region in particular. So we're looking here at where, if you're looking at a map, the Dordogne and the Gironde area is, and you literally just have to go less than about 20 miles before you get to Cower. So they were really, they were short yeah. to, to the you know world stage by a very short distance. I and mean, on a horse, though. You know, well, imagine, yeah, it's of like course, a day. of course, and that—that's where we have in the mid 1800s. We do have the railways to thank for giving more opportunities for places like Cower, sure. places like Côte de Duras, <laughs> places like Madaron and Jurançon to become more accessible. But what happens when you're more accessible? So am I. And so the Languedoc yeah. in the south that produces more wine than almost anywhere in the world they got a railway too. So mm. now you're competing with yep. higher production area. And that's why they always, you know, they've been visible if you've been paying attention, but if you haven't, you're buying wines from Bordeaux and wines from the Languedoc. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the middle, there are some gems people, and they usually are half the price, if not a quarter of a price, if not 10% of the price of wow. a, a nice Bordeaux. Well, we're drinking Cower, and we're in Minneapolis, so thanks, Railways. Yeah, and thanks, ships, for <laughs> I know. shipping things in refrigerated Planes. containers. This is actually imported by Jenny and Francois, who they bring in a lot of, a lot of natural wine, a lot of natural-ish wine, just people that are making wine in a better fashion, um, in a more intrinsic, holistic way than, say, a conventional producer. I was going to talk about Merlot and how it was pushed by the wayside by Pinot Noir post sideways. But I think that's a whole nother topic because yeah. raise your hands, people. Who wants to hear more about Merlot? I do. I just, a kid across the street yelled, he does. <laughs> and I just saw physically about 300 hands go up in cars. So, okay, that'll be a separate episode. Well, to things that got backburnered or pushed to the side for whatever reason, and we can still enjoy them. Hashtag 2021. And we'll champion you here on Scores and Pours. To Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially. Cha-ching! Thank you very much at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You can also find a link on that site to merch. As well as a playlist and a wine list. 
We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours. Please send us a DM if you have any show ideas or questions. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Love you, Sam. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. June.